0: Welcome to MOSE 15, the reunion. I'm Haley Friedman. My site was Melange in Zambézia province, and I was a health volunteer. I then extended for a third year, and I moved to Angos in Ampula province, uh, where I went from community health promotion work to serving as the monitoring, evaluation, and communications officer for a co-equal conservation and development program with CARE and WWF. So my full a term was from 2010 to 2013.
1: Haley, what makes you happy besides your family?
0: I like this idea of family because it's certainly a core part of who I am, but I would say my chosen family makes me really happy. I am well-connected with lots of close friends. Uh, my career makes me happy I work in global health uh, which really sort of launched during my time in Peace Corps as a health volunteer uh, and I get to work um, on issues that I am really passionate about. Uh, in this day and age I think any good news coming from other parts of the world and learning about people's lives, that brings me joy. Uh, I like to be outside, I like to travel. I was excited to get back traveling globally. I went to Peru and Colombia this year, Costa Rica last year. Uh, so traveling makes me happy. Good food, good drink, good friends. I think things that make most people happy make me happy.
1: If someone did not remember you, how would you best describe your Peace Corps self?
0: I feel like I was very isolated from most other volunteers. My site was only four kilometers from the Malawi border, and I was about an eight hours drive from other volunteers. Those I spent the most time with were in Zambezia province. So you might remember me as as a volunteer who was probably not very involved or very active in a lot of gatherings. Uh, people might remember me as a triplet. That seems to be something that sticks in people's minds. But apart from that, I'm not really sure uh, what would trigger their memory of me.
1: I was going to bring up the triplet. Yeah. I'm going to share Something that I remember, it might be wrong, and Ian's going to have to um, correct it, but I think Ian, like, knocked your sister's books over or something. One one of your sisters, he went to the same school as her. I don't remember what school Ian went to, but there's, like, a weird or funny story with that. Do you, do you, do you remember that at all?
0: I don't, but Ian, I want you to reach out to me and tell me what you remember, because...
1: Yeah, it's probably going to be something not as bad as knocking her books down, but... Something like that.
0: Somehow they connected. Was this supposed to have been after we served together? No, I think it was before. I don't remember this, but I'm curious.
1: Ian, let us know. So, yeah. this is my plug for the Slack group. Ian's going to let us know on the Slack group. He's probably going to be slightly outraged. Please forgive me, Ian. It's something like that, though.
0: I look forward to reading about it and seeing what this connection is.
1: And then what have you been up to the last 10 years? Since you because you did an extra year. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing?
0: I think it's easiest to maybe just do a quick chronological recounting of what I've been doing. So after I because which was December of 2013, I moved back home to Arizona and waited around to start grad school from that odd time of leaving. I didn't enroll until the fall of uh, 2014, but then I went to Europe. So I did a master's in public health degree um, that was delivered through two universities. It was uh, funded through a program called Erasmus Mundus. Uh, So I got to do my first year in England at the University of Sheffield and my second year in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen. And uh, my degree program actually brought me back to Mozambique. So in the spring of 2016, I got to go back and do primary research for my dissertation. I looked at maternal nutrition and I was able to collaborate with care. Mozambique, I already had worked with uh, and for my third year. But what was neat about this is I got to go to somewhere totally different. So they uh, wanted me to go to the south. So I went to Homwini in and Barn, which I know was Jason's site and got to spend two and a half months there. I actually lived with the education volunteers Uh, They had an extra bedroom in their housing, and I interviewed pregnant and nursing women uh, who were seeking care at uh, two different clinics in the area. So it was a neat, neat way to bring me back to Mozambique, but to a completely different uh, part of the country.
1: Who had a better site, you or Jason?
0: Oh, I will always say I did, and I would say both of my sites were were top-notch sites uh, in Mozambique, for sure. But it was it was still a wonderful time, and being able to meet and connect with people whom he even worked with, uh, who remembered him, Jason. People loved you. Uh, that was a neat thing to to have those connections when you go back after years, and and people still have that memory of those volunteers who were there. So really special.
1: Yeah. So after your your Mozambican research,
0: after my yeah. So I graduated then in the summer. Uh, of 2016. And I guess I can go back. Another major life event happened Uh, in 2015. uh, My mother passed away from cancer. So she received a diagnosis in 2014 about, actually it was a week before I got um, my acceptance letter for my graduate program. And so during those two years of grad school, I also uh, went back and forth and, and served as a primary caregiver to my mother. And I share that because that leads me to where I am in my career. So uh, after she passed away, I sort of was, a, and I graduated, uh, spent some time in Chicago where my one of my triplet sisters is, and then felt kind of lost with what I wanted to do. It was at that point, I wasn't finding a job of interest. I wasn't really sure what next steps were there, that I was attracted to a Peace Corps response opportunity. So I found myself, once again, a Peace Corps volunteer for a fourth year. Uh, I served in Liberia, and I worked with the Ministry of Health at the county level to help uh, implement a community health program. And that uh, term of service lasted nine of the 12 months that I was supposed to be there for, because then I found uh, an opportunity to apply my public health global health experience to the issue of cancer care. And I came back and I, I joined the American Cancer Society, uh, where I still work five years later on global cancer um, initiatives and patient support. Another interesting tieback, uh, my boss and the person who hired me is actually Christy McComb, who was the health APCD in Mozambique for our group for our first year and a half. So continual connections to Peace Corps Mozambique.
1: What was your graduate degree?
0: I uh, got a degree in public health. It was actually a pretty generic degree, but in um, health promotion and prevention with a global health focus. Uh, And just by virtue of studying in Europe, it was also a a program that looked at comparative health systems. I no longer do work in nutrition, but that was the focus of my dissertation. Uh, Well, nutrition is a component of of patient support in cancer care. But my my main focus is on um, um, helping patients and families access care. So a lot of initiatives focusing on with government as well as um, health systems, hospitals and civil society on improving access to cancer care. And then while patients are in care, um, what they need to successfully complete treatment. So what we call wraparound services, um, accommodation support, transportation support, cancer education, patient navigation, um, critical elements to help people get through um, their journey.
1: Are you specifically working with patients? Are you working with social workers? How's What's the dynamics there?
0: So the American Cancer Society does not have any presence around the world. We work strategically through partnerships um, with hospitals, ministries, civil society, and it's all through um, grant relationships. So we provide funding and technical assistance. So we, just like in Peace Corps, it's a capacity development approach. We're providing resources and funding and knowledge to people to implement their programs and support their patients. So uh, I work with, uh, primarily our focus for a while has been East Africa. So we're working in Kenya, Uganda, and Ethiopia, and we're funding patient navigation programs into national referral hospitals that are the primary uh, places of cancer care in in those countries, so Kenya and Uganda. Um, So I don't do any patient-facing work. It's all about supporting healthcare providers, policymakers, uh, and leaders of civil society organizations who provide support services to patients to to do their work better and to, to help meet their patients' needs.
1: Okay, so besides meetings, what do you do on a typical day?
0: A lot of what I do is I would call it content development or content transformation. We've, we've kind of passed this proof of concept phase by funding these programs in these large hospital systems. And now we've built out and I've helped to build out a massive toolkit so that any hospital or um, organization in a low and middle income country who wants to introduce patient navigation which is a a standard of care in the United States, this this concept that once you receive a cancer diagnosis, there's someone there to meet that patient where they are to help educate them on what their diagnosis is, help them understand their options, what treatment looks like, and then is sort of there to guide them through what often is a really complex healthcare system or cancer journey. So um, I've been translating a lot of the best practices and the lessons and what has worked really well um, in these countries, resources that people can access online and then we have been supporting through a lot of virtual webinars and um, other you know other events and ways supporting these people with building programs in their in their countries and in their institutions so i do a lot of i don't have as much direct support as i would like but we're at least having some direct ties to, to folks around the world through our online it's a website and our platforms and our projects that way. I do a lot of grants management, making sure funds are being used appropriately, which is not the most exciting part of my job, but it is a part of it. And I have some contracts that I manage with certain folks for helping us um, implement certain parts of our work, training programs around um, some work with cancer education materials. So we have materials that were developed in our countries that we work by folks um, in those countries that have information that's relevant to the populations we serve and images that represent them at the reading level that they are at, that kind of thing. So, work with various groups of people to keep these materials going and moving and update them as needed. So, that's kind of a bit about my day-to-day.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it do you predict that that what you're doing and and everything you just mentioned will scale up to other countries
0: yes and we're seeing that happen in real time so we focused on east africa in particular but we've now expanded and we have partners and programs that are launching soon all over the world uh we have i think uh, in latin america um asia 10 or 11 other programs that are coming online so we're seeing something that is not really well known around the world patient navigation uh, and we're seeing it starting to to be implemented not as sort of this really exciting add-on service but an essential service because you know these health systems they have one oncologist for a hundred thousand people in the capital they have um People coming through who get a piece of paper and they leave and they say I'm sick and they don't even know they have a cancer diagnosis. So just by bringing in more human resources and giving them some basic training and and the time to to really sit with patients, it's really transforming people's understanding of of cancer um, and then helping them link to services that do exist, even though they are in really resource-constrained environments. So it's really exciting um and and it's pretty simple at the base it's just if you if you value patient-centered care and you give someone the ability to talk to someone about what they're going through um you're going to see a lot better outcomes at the end of the day for them.
1: Okay, let's let's transition away from your career. Yeah. So you haven't mentioned a husband or a boyfriend or kids.
0: <laughs> no, I have not because I do not have a husband do not have a boyfriend, or do not have kids. Dating's been interesting since COVID. I live in Washington, DC, and I would just say it's an interesting and challenging place to find a partner. So hopefully things will change. I've been on many dates with many men, but none of them have worked out thus far. But uh I'm an aunt, which is very exciting. So I have a two and a half year old nephew, and my sister is going to have a baby girl any day now so that's really exciting
1: they're in chicago
0: yeah she's uh, lives in oak park illinois and um i was just saying I, I don't have any aspiration to have kids i think if i really wanted to be a mom i would have figured that out already so part of why i really haven't quote settled down is um happy happy just being an aunt and certainly would love companionship, but just hasn't been what's happened so far.
1: You could store store some eggs. It's fairly affordable. It's worth the cost.
0: Yeah. And actually a number of my friends are doing just that. But I, I don't want to have kids. Like I've known that for 15 years. And I what made me know for certain is I did want to test this. I said, okay, maybe it's because I haven't had the circumstances to have kids that I've told myself I don't want to be a mom, right? So when my sister was pregnant with her son, I spent a whole month with her and I kind of bookended my time around her due date. And I said, okay, if if I'm, if my triplet sister, if I'm with her and I'm experiencing her pregnancy alongside her and all of it, this comes with, if that doesn't trigger any major things of you got to go make a baby, then I know I'm, I'm where I'm at with my decision. And it didn't, I'm just as happily sitting here, seeing my future without my own children. So.
1: Well, don't get me wrong. I'm very pro no kids, for sure.
0: I like kids from a distance. I like being engaged and involved in their lives, but not in the every hour, every day aspect. And I also just really enjoy being responsible for me and doing what I want to do. So,
1: Yeah, Auntie would be perfect for you.
0: Yes, that's what I've got. And I'm really happy for it.
1: What is so challenging about dating in DC? It seems like DC would be a very good place to date because it's full of of smart people, interesting diverse people. So what's what's so challenging?
0: I think there's two main things. One, there are a lot of people who are in and out. So although there are a lot of people who live here, there's still quite a large percentage of the population who um are transient. So they come for a period of time and then they go, whether it's government related or or what have you. So there's lots of movement. I think my age is tricky. So I'm now 36. And a lot of the single people are like 25, or 45. So it's sort of the people in my age group. I mean, I'm open to dating older, not so open to dating younger. But a lot of people kind of around the age that I'm interested in are already married already, you know, have figured this out. So I think I'm just, those are the two things that make it a bit more challenging.
1: Well, they're going to start getting divorced in a year now.
0: Yeah, so I'm probably going to probably gonna meet and marry a divorcee. That's probably where I'm headed. So whatever, open to it. They're a good person.
1: Have you picked up any new hobbies?
0: I wouldn't say I picked up new hobbies. I guess I have some of the same hobbies. Um, the one consistent thing I do on a regular basis is I go to choir rehearsals. So I do sing in a church choir not a religious person but i i'm a, a a member of a unitarian universalist church choir which is pretty much the most open and progressive uh religious institution that there is it's a great group of people so i do that i'm i'm always curious i'm i'm always i like to cook so i'm exploring with foods but i don't have any other major hobbies
1: have your politics changed? And if so, which direction have they gone?
0: I don't think my politics have changed, but I'm still very liberal and progressive leaning. Being in D.C. is an interesting dynamic because everyone who actually lives in Washington, D.C., despite a representation in Congress and on the Hill, we're all very liberal and progressive, but we don't have the right to vote. So um, it's an interesting dynamic, but definitely surrounded by all very like-minded individuals, usually in my day-to-day and my work and my social life. Um, And I sort of avoid spaces where others might be (laughs) proactively. But yeah.
1: Do you keep in touch with any Mozambicans?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, I still have a very close relationship with my counterpart. His name is Manuel. And...
2: Um, we, I
0: was able to see him when I was back in Mozambique in 2016. So I went back to site and got to see him and his family. But, you know, since serving, it's just amazing. During our time there, tech they weren't very tech savvy. I didn't have a smartphone. They didn't have Facebook or any of these other tools, really. But now I have WhatsApp communications fairly regularly uh, with him and and a few other people. Um, So that's been really nice to have that uh, connection still. And my direct replacement, um, who overlapped with me for a period of time, she's actually living and working in Maputo. So she's been able to go back to our site and relay stories and information and connect us um, that way too, which has been really nice.
1: What's it like revisiting Mozambique?
0: Well, it was it was interesting going back in 2016. So that was um, two and a half years or so after I left. And going back to my site, because even though I was there through 2013, I had left Melange in 2012. I think there's a lot that's similar and a lot that's different every time. Uh, I was able to go back again in 2019, very briefly, just to Maputo for a conference that just serendipitously was held in Maputo. And uh, Maputo was very different from what I had remembered it being like, just growth, I think. Um, and the other thing that I, I think is interesting is, is the contrast in the, and also the similarities that I saw in Liberia and West Africa to Mozambique, because there are certain things that I think I attributed to being uniquely Mozambican, which I realized were really not. I think they're more uniquely attributable to um, a country that is coming out of a civil war or um, a community or a space where, you know, the challenges are similar in terms of a survivalist um, mentality or need to just find a way to provide for your family each day and how that sort of gets wrapped up in the way that, in you know, communications, attitudes, ideas, but there's something still really special about Mozambique. I think we all feel that. Uh, and the more that i I talk to others who served in Mozambique after me, or those who visited Mozambique who were serving in neighboring countries, I have a lot of RPCB friends. actually, most of my friends are RPCBs. You, you start to learn about or you start to hear, you know what makes Mozambique really unique and special. Um, and for me, it's things like the food the beach, (laughs) um, the beauty, but it's just, there's something that you can't really put words to either. That just, it it, it just makes it um, an amazing place. So I'm sure we all have our things that we think of and like to talk about. Uh, But I I hope to continue to go back. I would like to have that be something I can continue to do.
1: All right, let's go pre-Peace Corps. Why did you join the Peace Corps?
0: I think like most of us graduated, well, I graduated in 2009. And at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had a liberal arts degree in my pocket and it was the crash. So there wasn't a lot of opportunities that seemed like good financial sense. I was explicitly told, don't go and don't invest all this money in a graduate program if you don't really know for sure what you want to do. And there weren't a lot of job opportunities. So I spent the spring semester um Sort of applying to different opportunities that would be, um, that were not grad school or a job. So I actually applied to AmeriCorps and Peace Corps at the same time and I ended up doing both back to back. So um, and the reason I applied to Peace Corps as one of these opportunities was I had a professor who was a really powerful mentor to me who had served in Peace Corps Senegal, a medical anthropologist who was really, who encouraged me um, to consider applying. I also studied abroad in Ghana my junior year, and so I was very keen on serving um, in an African country, and so that's how I approached my application. I said I wanted to, you know, Africa was my top preferred region of the world, and then health was my top preferred uh, sector. Uh, My background, or my um, bachelor's was in anthropology and psychology so health was an area of interest to me too um so it seemed like a really great opportunity not just because there wasn't really a great opportunity in front of me right away career-wise but uh also it aligned with my interests in global health and what I had come to enjoy about um, Africa actually so
1: do you remember when you found out you were going to Mozambique
0: I do. I was on a 10-day road trip with my AmeriCorps colleagues. Uh, we were doing a national parks tour, so we were driving around, and I was driving the car uh, with my friend Paul in the passenger seat, and we were on our way to Yellowstone, and my mother called me, and she said I got something in the mail. And I said, oh, she was, I'm like, well, why are you calling me? She goes, well, it's something I think you're going to want. to to know about and said oh who's it from she said oh it's from the Peace Corps and so at that point I got really excited and I thought it may have been an invitation to serve she had opened it of course before calling me and so then I had to pull the car over because at that point I was not a responsible driver and um, that's when she told me and I was like oh wow that was an unexpected place um I think in my recruitment period they said likely spanish-speaking africa which didn't really make sense i think you know equatorial guinea didn't have volunteers at the time and that was the only technically spanish-speaking country that i was familiar with so i got really excited about it uh nonetheless and what's neat though is the person paul was with me he came to visit me two years later and was able to to see my site and and travel around mozambique with me so he got to see from the very first moment of receiving my invitation to serve, to, to seeing me while I was in service.
1: What was your biggest fear about going to Peace Corps in Mozambique?
0: I had absolutely zero Portuguese and my invitation came to me, I think fairly close to when I was needing to leave a month or two before. And so I was a little bit nervous that I wouldn't be able to learn Portuguese or communicate effectively. I remember and one strong memory I do have from uh, training is, the, the, you know, our first day, our, our language interviews. I think I, I didn't say anything. I just stared at whomever was interviewing me. The one question I think I could answer was, you know, or something, and I just said Haley. So I was definitely a complete novice in the, you know, bottom rung, very beginning beginners group. Um, so I was, I was really worried that I was just not going to pick up the language.
1: Did you speak any other languages?
0: I studied the required uh, years of Spanish to have that, uh, you know, fit for serving in a Portuguese speaking country. But I didn't learn Spanish. I passed my exams to pass my classes. That was it. So, no, I didn't speak any other language other than English.
1: How about now? Do you speak any other languages?
0: No, I, I still only speak. English and Portuguese but I have a few Swahili phrases now and a few other things in my back pocket based on where I've lived and worked and the people I've come to know but I think my fears were, were unfounded because I was able to learn Portuguese and I think being by myself at sight and not having any English speaking folks near me really helped accelerate my learning
1: how's your Portuguese now
0: you know, I think it's pretty good. I was able to test it in May. I walked the Camino de Santiago from Porto in northern Portugal to Santiago de Compostela. And the entire time that I was in Portugal, I was speaking Portuguese with anyone who would be willing to speak with me. And I did well. And And I had been to Portugal before, back in twenty. I think I went in 2014, and then again in 2016. And the difference this time was, I wasn't asked, where the hell are you from? Because that happened a lot. They couldn't place my accent. They knew I wasn't Brazilian. They knew I wasn't Portuguese. But um, but I, I it came back rather quickly and I was able to to have great conversations with people. So I also do support work in Brazil. So I've been recently um, reading and commenting on program documents in Portuguese. So that helps too, to have.
1: What three words would you use to describe your Peace Corps experience?
0: Fulfilling, diverse, and challenging.
1: Would you like to expand on any of those?
0: Fulfilling, because I really do think the three years I spent there were, were hugely foundational in where I am today and, and why I do what I do and the way that I approach what I do. Diverse because I I had sort of the best of both worlds in terms of two really different and unique site placements. I had two years in a mountainous region right on the Malawi border where I had the best vegetable market in the entire country, you know, cabbages the size of, you know, a volleyball and carrots and zucchini and things that no one else had. Um, A a really beautiful part of the country near the tea estates in Malawi. So mountainous and cool climate, Um, mostly Christian population. And then I got to move to a coastal site in in Nampula, uh, which was Muslim primarily. Went to basically no vegetables, but seafood. Uh, Was by the beach, went to a really hot and humid climate, Um, just really diverse experiences and, you know, went from being completely by myself uh, and really isolated from other volunteers, even to having two site mates from uh, the next cohort. So I had two education volunteers with me in my third year in Angosh uh and then all the all the people flocked there for for from the north for parties so then my house i was hosting pcvs for huge parties all the time so i went from being by myself hardly you know socializing really with anyone outside of my community to uh to to that other side to to the other side of the country doing very different things so it was, again the best of sort of what people probably reflect on and remember and enjoy about their Peace Corps service. Um, Challenging, one of the reasons I stayed a third year was I had a really rough second year. I worked very, very hard with a number of counterparts to put together a a project and a proposal for a VAS grant that we were awarded. I think it was about $10,000, which at the time felt like a lot of money. Um and in within three months, everything fell apart, and one of our one of the lead counterparts who I'd been working with for a year and a half stole about six thousand dollars of the funds in sneaky ways and kind of ran away with it. So I was feeling very discouraged. I was feeling very much like a failure. I was upset at myself for not recognizing the signs that were in hindsight clearly there that this man was really not to be trusted. And I just said, if I leave now, I'm gonna have a very sour taste in my mouth for this experience and my service. Um, and this was all when this all came to fruition around the time that my replacement came to live with me. And I really just felt like, you know, I need to give her space to, to have her own experience, but I, I can't end my experience here and now. So I looked for ways to stay. Uh, And I'm really grateful that I did. So definitely, as they say, high highs and low lows, but I think by having that third year, a very different perspective, um, it rounded out to be an overall very positive experience.
1: What do you miss most about Mozambique?
0: My days of languishing and just hanging out. Uh, (laughs) I really miss just being able to sit under a mango tree and talk to someone about their life and have that be a meaningful way to spend a day. Uh, apart from that, I also miss matapa.
1: Do you have your own U.S. version of of matapa? I yes. What's your recipe?
0: So I use um, collard greens for kovi, and I try to keep it as close to a, a more traditional recipe as possible. So sometimes I do find the dried shrimp to to. Grind and add in there, the peanut flour, the coconut milk, um, the tomatoes. I'm sure the ratios aren't perfect, but some combination of all of that mixed together. And it's great.
1: Do you buy peanut powder or peanuts? Do you mash your own peanuts somehow?
0: I do not mash my own peanuts. (laughs) We have in DC a lot of markets where you can find uh, different You can buy fufu and other African-type foods and things. So I I can find some things in in those sorts of markets and places um, that that helps a lot. That's, like, where the dried shrimp can come from, too. Um, But if I don't have peanut flour, sometimes I just use a little bit of peanut butter. It's not the same, but it still kind of helps get it close enough.
1: Well, I have have my own knockoff of Kobe, and I use peanut butter and I don't use a little bit. I use a lot of peanut butter. butter.
0: Got to share your recipe and I'll, I'll try it out. You
1: know, another slack plug. I think I, I've, I don't actually have a recipe cause I I'm too inconvenienced to measure anything. So it's just a scoop of this, a scoop of that. And I yeah. just toss in whatever veg, veggies are in, are in the fridge. So my, so my recipe is not consistent and nothing that you can really follow.
0: I feel like we make it I say we because I often make this with other Mos RPCVs my two site mates from my third year actually live in DC with me so we are, and and with that's you, a really with
1: you you guys are roommates
0: not literally with okay, me okay. I say with right. me and that they're in they're in DC proper which I think is is pretty cool as of last year um so that's been neat to have have them right here with me um the other thing i miss i would say is it's something I mentioned as a hobby of mine, that one of the things I did in Melange is I sang in a in a church choir in my community uh, with my counterpart, his wife, and a few other people that I worked with. And that was really fun. So I do I do miss that. It was an interesting and uh, unique part of my, my time there.
1: And what do you miss least about Mozambique? I also had a tough time.
0: I think we always tend to, to remember the best. And then the worst things are just circumstances or events that happen to us. They're not things that I attach to Mozambique as a place and my time as an experience. Um, I think corruption, some, I mean, that's such a cliche to say that.
1: So that's actually a very good answer
0: and and i think i it, it resonates with me because i see it playing out in in with a, with the organizations i currently support and it's just it's just really frustrating because uh it's it's a limitation to to improving people's lives and i think it's so deeply entrenched and it's largely our fault um in how we've colonized and built this legacy of aid and it's just it's just frustrating I'm always challenged to figure out how to decolonize development, decolonize global health and the work that I do. Um, but there are these things that are just, they're just so present and it, it, it's, it's just a big challenge. And uh, I don't really have a way forward from that or, or way out of that, but I, I feel why this grant didn't work well was because of behaviors that others modeled from other people that we somehow have the right to take this money because we need it and we deserve it. And uh I think there's some truth in that for every single person who is a part of these choices and decisions
1: is the aid causing the lack of a strong institution, a stable institution that that isn't corrupt?
0: I think there's certainly a relationship. I don't want to do the correlation causation uh here, but it's all, you know, the mechanisms of aid, whether it's through government aid or through, like, us, we're a nonprofit organization and we provide grant funding. There's always a margin or percentage that you accept, just goes out in the wash through different things that happen. <laughs> right. And I think small money, big money uh the relationships we have with how we account for money what we choose to fund and not fund uh and then just that the high you know 1% 10% continue to receive most of the aid just in the way that structures and systems are set up in a lot of these countries who's in government who's in you know who are the leads of these of the hospitals or the big organizations that are in a place to even receive aid um It just perpetuates some of some of the issues.
1: If we drop the aid, if we just let's say for some, uh, we did a a study. We randomly chose half the countries and dropped all aid. Do those countries figure it out faster?
0: I wouldn't say that, but I want to pivot slightly and say that I do fundamentally agree with and believe in what has been shown to be effective, and that is giving people money, individuals money, giving people and that let them make the decisions about how to use that money, they will often make better choices that will lead to better outcomes than having a huge percentage of aid go to um, people to implement projects and programs, right? To, oper- you know, to operations and to big implementers, et cetera. Giving the individual families money, they'll make good choices. Giving women money, they'll make excellent choices that will improve their health, their family's health. Um, so there's a lot. And these are things that we know. We as in, you know, there's there's literature, peer reviewed, um, you know, robust studies that show this. So I'm definitely of the philosophy that let the people make the decisions. But at the same time, we're 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 caught up in, in systems that we can't change today and we have to work with what we have. Um, and I'm not opposed to even working for USAID someday to implement programs and projects, maybe I can help change some of the approaches. I don't have the silver bullet. There isn't a silver bullet solution, but the closer, I guess what I want to say is the closer we can get to helping, getting getting the money closer to the people who truly are uh, in need um, to then be decision makers about that money, I think the better off everyone will be.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. So. If we had a, a different study, we we randomly chose countries into three groups. Okay, one group gets their same dead aid that they've been getting. The other group, one, one group gets nothing. And that third group, literally just straight, whatever cash funding goes straight to people.
0: Of those three who would do better?
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's clear which one's going to do better.
0: I would think so too. We haven't really tested that out fully yet because I think they're, people are hesitant.
1: What are a few things you did a lot in Mozambique that you either never or rarely do now?
0: I did a lot of more reading than I do now. I I, I like to think I'm a reader. I like to think that I love reading. I have, God knows, hundreds of books in my house. But I find I fill my time with other activities than sitting and reading, whereas that was often the only activity that I had to do. I spent a lot of time journaling and navel-gazing and reflecting on who I am and what am I doing here. Uh, And while I still am pretty introspective, I don't spend a lot of time journaling anymore.
1: How many journals did you fill?
0: I am very proud of what i did for journaling because i used it as a language learning tool and i forced myself from day one at site to only journal in portuguese wow and i had my dictionary and wanting to express or describe a lot of it's very narrative like descriptive of what did i do today but of course the very beginning it's very very shitty and i you know hardly said anything and then i got to be more advanced over time but i probably I was very good and consistent at least writing something down every day. So I, and I still have all of them, but I filled probably six or seven notebooks.
1: Julie said hers was something like 20. So, so you haven't, you're probably number two in the group.
0: (laughs) I don't know, but they're all in a trunk in my closet and I could pull them up and see some, I actually did revisit them. Nothing too, you know, revealing or insightful, but it was, it was interesting to remember that I did that. I mean, I, I recommend, you know, I talked to a lot of people who, who are going to be going to Peace Corps. I say, do journal, document what you're thinking, feeling, even if you think it's super mundane and lame. It's It's nice to have a record of this time of your life.
1: Estimating from my head, it sounds like you spent at least four years in Africa. So what was your malaria medication adherence plan during those African trips?
0: Okay, so I was on all three types of prophylaxis at different points, um, and I was very adherent, and I definitely have a soapbox response to this question. Everyone's their own person may make their own decisions, but I have always had way back then from the very get-go, and I still feel now, the privilege that we have as Peace Corps volunteers to have a medicine that prevents us from getting this disease is immense, and to And to take that was really important for me because I was working in communities where their children were dying of malaria and they did not have access to prophylaxis in the same way. In Liberia, my work was in helping to diagnose and treat malaria as one of the major killers of kids under five. So when we're given medicine, we should take it. Um, Side effects aside, this is why I had, you know, all three at different points because I... They didn't always work for me. I still found the one that did. Um so I was very compliant. Um, I do think certain drugs probably should be phased out of Peace Corps Mexican, like they did with the u s military, but that's a slightly different conversation than just being adherent and, and 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 you know it's it was important to me and a good way to model for others the importance of taking treatment or taking drugs, you know, I was working in, health volunteers were all working in HIV, a lot of us were working um, on initiatives to help people um, not default on their antiretroviral treatment, so if I can't be adherent to my weekly pill or my daily pill, I don't know how I can expect to tell this person that they should be adherent to their daily pill to save their life, so that's what I'll say about that, you're welcome to ask a follow-up question
1: everyone has their own take on on the malaria meds absolutely do you have do you have a funny story to share with us
0: so i think one of my most memorable stories that i've told over the years is about the time that i was baptized so as i think i mentioned i sang in a choir at a church in my community and that involved um it's a seventh day adventist church so most Saturdays, I would go to church and I sang in an acapella choir. So I would, we would sing a few points in time and then I would just be sitting. And the entire service always was in Chichewa. So I never knew what was happening or what they were talking about. And I would leave and come back. and But they knew pretty early on because I was asked, are you Seventh-day Adventist? That I was not. And that didn't seem to be an issue with me still participating. And I was new to the community and they were like, oh, it's fine. But about six months or so into my time, my colleague and friend in the choir said, oh, by the way, um, your baptism date is next Saturday. And I said, it wasn't, would you like to be baptized? Are you interested in being baptized? It was more of a statement, which I took to mean, okay, To continue to be a part of this, I probably should be baptized.
1: Now, was it now was it clearly a statement? Because you know, in Portuguese, you you can use statements as questions.
0: That is a good point. No, it was very clear that this was already arranged. I was on the list for what was um a massive baptism of about 30 souls. Okay, so And I don't have a lot of context going into it. They're like, just show up, bring a change of clothes. We're going to take you down to the river. And I was like, okay. So I get there and I realize I'm one of many, which I was grateful for because I really didn't want it to be the Haley Baptism show. I thought that might be a little odd. But there, there probably literally are 30 of us. And we process from the church down to, I guess it was more of a stream, but it had some depth to it. And a priest and another guy getting weighed into the water it was probably deep for them. And it was really mucky and brown, but it was flowing, flowing water. And then they arranged all of us two by two. And we would, we were then brought into the water. And then the priest and the other guy would, would, the priest put the hand, his hand on your back and sort of on your front. And then they would just in unison dip, dip the two people in. Lots of singing was happening and people were saying different things and blessings, et cetera. Um, And so I was pretty far back in the line. So I'd seen it happen a number of times and kind of knew what I was expecting. But unfortunately, my counterpart was going to be baptized with me. I think she was really afraid of water. I don't think she'd ever been swimming. So she was really scared. And it was a really horrible experience for her because she was very rigid and they they must have said whatever they had to say before they dunk you in a number of times. And they kind of dunked me in a couple times, but they were supposed to do us both. But they finally were able to help her in the water and out. Um, But she was absolutely petrified. I felt bad for her. So that was all fine. We go along the way and, um, and then they bring us back and everyone's given some flowers. And then we all have to sort of recite something that basically says, you know, I believe in Jesus or whatever I was supposed to say. Um, and it, it was an interesting day. There are some missionaries in the town who, upon hearing about this, came and, and they photographed this whole event and then gave me um, a gift at the end and, and you know, welcoming me um, and into their community formally. Um, so you know, people ask me, well, were you ever baptized? Did this counter your initial baptism, et cetera? And I was never, I actually was baptized as a baby, as a Lutheran, but I didn't grow up in the Lutheran church. And I I sort of saw this as just a uh, a way to, you know, honor the, the wishes of the community that I was a part of. I guess it could have been it was sort of a rebirth for me but it wasn't really anything super spiritual and I certainly didn't feel any more saved after than before but um it was just an interesting experience I don't know if funny would be the best way to classify it but it does stick out as uh, a memorable moment I don't have any like crazy stories of you know shitting my pants in a in a in a truck or anything like that so thank god those I know are quite memorable for
1: a lot of people well, next time you go to your to your universalist uh choir, just ask them when your baptism is scheduled because you'd like right. to know ahead of time <laughs> What was the worst thing you did or the most trouble you could have gotten into during your we'll say your three years your your three year peace corps experience you can define those however you would like. And it seems like not taking your malaria meds was not going to be a contender.
0: No, I'm actually really, really lucky because I didn't really have a lot of, um, I didn't have any real major health scares or health issues. I didn't get deathly ill or anything like that. So I'm grateful for that. Um, The worst thing that happened was not a rule that I broke against Peace Corps policy. It was that I got, the date wrong for my mother's arrival to visit me when I was in Angoche, and I had it as the day after she arrived. And the day that she arrived, I happened to be on a Dow off the coast of Ilya with a phone that didn't have service. Wow. So my poor mother arrives in the Nampula airport, completely jet lagged. She's never gone anywhere really outside of the U.S. She'd gone to I think England once when she was a teenager. So she's not an international traveler. She doesn't speak obviously any Portuguese. And I promised her because she was very nervous that I would be there waiting for her when she walked out of the doors of the airport, which I was not. So I get back to like well, Hold on,
1: hold on, hold on. So you're not in any contact with your mom? Like, Hey, I'm getting on the airplane or like, I'm getting ready. Like no, you guys, you guys don't have any communication.
0: No, it's funny to think and looking looking back on that. I knew when she was departing, but because she was coming from Phoenix, Arizona, I didn't remember all of her layovers and the the timing and the flights and everything. I knew it was going to be a long journey, but at the time, again, I still didn't have a smartphone. I never had a smartphone at any point in in my 3 years. I um so it wasn't I wasn't able to access, you know, immediately email. Um so I'm ready to I, I'm ready to go there and meet her there the next morning. But she got there the day before. And I get back to land and I I kid you not, I had like 32 missed calls. And I come to find out that well, what I did do right is I said, okay, if something happens to me when you arrive, here's the name and phone number of an English speaking um, person who lives in Namola who works for care most. You can you can find a way because she would she didn't even have a phone. You can find a way to call him and then he he can help you. So she was able to to do that. And they came and picked her up. Um, My mom thought I was dead on the side of the road. It was like eight hours from the point of her arrival until they even heard from me. And I said, Mom, I'm okay. It's okay. Um, they had sent a search party to find me in Angos, where I was not. So people knocked on all my doors. All of my colleagues got roped in to try to figure out where I was, because of course I didn't say, Hey, I'm going to be going to Ilya to my, to my boss or my colleagues. They didn't know what I was doing it was a weekend. That was also a challenge because it was a weekend. People were all over the place. So I finally make it to her, but she is a changed person. She was just, she I will never forgive myself for this because the entire trip, she was just completely still out of sorts. And I I just can't even imagine all of the horrifying stories that she was playing in her head about what had happened to me. She couldn't sleep for most of our trip. I mean, it was really, really traumatic for her. And uh, yeah, that was horrible. I still have nightmares about it sometimes. Um, Yeah, so that was my worst thing I did it's probably the only thing worth mentioning. Of course, I lied about being out of sight. Of course, I did things this way or that way. I mean, money walked away, but that ended up being something I had to account for and report to Peace Corps. And I had to actually pay some of that money back. Um, So those things were not great either, but what else?
1: Let's transition to something more uh, positive. How, How did or how has Peace Corps changed you?
0: As I said, I think it was kind of a natural progression for my career and my life. You know, you asked me earlier what I miss about it. The other thing I really miss about Peace Corps is the fact that I was working alongside and with people every day. And now I'm 17 steps removed from the people that I'm working with and supporting. Um, But I think having that was really an amazing opportunity and privilege to really Learn and understand how to how to work with folks, um, and that's been really critical to how I approach my relationships today uh, and and the partnerships that I have. I think you know it's it again it's very cliche, but living in a in a place outside of what you're comfortable with and what you know, challenging what you thought to be universal truths. These are all really healthy things for us. Um, exposure to different ways of thinking. Um, All of these things are really positive. And and, and I think Peace Corps is probably one of the best ways for that to to happen because of the amount of time that we were able to serve for. And, um, you know, how much of it was me driven, I think, too, that just figuring it out on my own and having to make decisions on my own, um, that was also a really important kind of life lesson in skill building, you know, growing much thicker skin and just having to figure it out. I don't know. I, I. What else have you heard? I'm curious what others have said about this. I should listen to the episodes.
1: People's answers have been mostly cliche.
0: Well, I mean, I, I don't know about others listening, but I feel like when you meet a new person, especially in a Maybe perhaps in the development sector, and they learn that you served in the Peace Corps. Then they ask you these questions: "Oh, tell me about your service. Tell me about what you did." And you sort of come up with these canned responses or elevator pitches about, "Oh, this was what I did. A little bit more than it was an amazing experience. You got to give some context." And I feel like I've just been kind of, you know, regurgitating the same sort of storyline. but it is always a little bit fluffy and it, it, it is always a little bit nostalgic. And I think it's clear, no matter who I'm speaking with, that they see how much I really loved my time in the Peace Corps. Uh, there's another podcast out there uh, and an episode about cults and Peace Corps as a cult is like a, a recent episode. I think we definitely have a cult mindset in a way. Um, and for those that had a positive experience, because certainly plenty of people did not have a good experience in the Peace Corps, those that, that do feel overall a net positive, um, I think we are sort of a community or a cult, and we, and we, um, it's a big part of who we are. It's, it, it becomes a part of our core identity, which I think is interesting because it's just an experience or two years of our lives. And yet, I meet you know, 70-year-olds who served in the Peace Corps and they still come to return Peace Corps volunteer activities and functions and they like to talk about their time. And there's an immediate affinity with others who served, even if it was 40 years after them in a completely different part of the world. So there is something powerful about that.
1: Okay, we we kind of talked about this indirectly, I feel like, but uh, what do you think of Peace Corps as a government agency?
0: I think my canned answer is that like any government agency, Peace Corps is certainly flawed. I do believe that the core, uh, you know, people who are in charge of Peace Corps are hopefully mindful that we can't be static and not change as we learn and grow. Um, I have some friends who are active in in various groups, including um, return Peace Corps volunteer affiliate groups who are more activists and sort of forcing changes. For example, when certain things came to light around Peace Corps handling of sexual assault allegations and the support of female volunteers, changes were made to policies and people, you know, spoke up about how things should be done differently. So I do believe, I believe in the core value of Peace Corps as, you know, the mission and vision. I think it's, it, it, it's certainly, I've always said this, even before I even became a volunteer, I knew I was going to gain a lot more than I think I gave. Um, But certainly, I hope the agency continues to reflect and improve because there's space for that. COVID was interesting, kind of what happened there. and, And I don't know what's happening in the future. I know some posts have opened up around the world in some countries. But If I were to have to check a box, do you approve and support the Peace Corps or do you not? I, of course, would check the yes box. I do approve and support the Peace Corps.
1: And when are you going to join Peace Corps again?
0: (laughs) Funny. Um, Well, as you said, I have four years of Peace Corps service behind me. So I have no intent of joining Peace Corps again. The only thing I might entertain would be uh, a staff position. I think it would be really, really cool to be a a DPT or who knows, a country director down the road in my career. Certainly don't need to volunteer.
1: That would kind of be doing Peace Corps again. I guess kind of not, though. If you live in a fancy house in the Capitol, I guess that doesn't count.
0: Yeah, I think it would be different. But I'm sure I would also be disgruntled by the fact that I'm living behind four walls and I'm quite removed. And maybe it wouldn't be very fulfilling.
1: I mean, you're doing that now, right? I mean, not to be rude, but...
0: Yeah, that's that's how my current work is. We don't even have offices overseas, and yet we are supporting initiatives in other countries, so from afar.
1: And it looks like you might have some real fofoka for us. Do you have any fofoca?
0: <laughs> so, as I said, I have a lot of friends who uh, served in Moe's that live here in D.C. with me or visit, and I heard a story... Quite recently, uh, one of these people, of course, was we were chatting and I was like, Where's your site? and came to learn that, of course, you know, who his predecessor was. And we were chatting and he told me that this person left their journal behind.
1: Sorry, can I interrupt? Was this person the most 15 or by any chance?
0: Yeah. A most 15 are left their journal behind. Oh, what even though you know he wanted to protect privacy, he was just so bored and had run out of things to read. <laughs> Period. So of course he, he decided he would just take a peek. Um and he ended up reading this person's entire journal. And I was like, oh my gosh, what did what did it say? What did you Say, and this is a really kind person. He says, I'm not going to give any specifics. That wouldn't be fair. And I'm not, for the record, I'm not going to say who it is. You know who you are, that you poured your heart and soul. I, I would hope listening, if, if you think about this, did you pour your heart and soul into a journal and leave it behind? Because maybe you thought someone, I mean.
1: Maybe you lost it and you didn't even know you left it behind. But anyways, yeah, so this is a female who was replaced by a male. The, we could probably narrow male it down.
0: This is a male. A male,
1: a male replaced by a male. Wow.
0: Well, I can yeah, I can go go so far as to say this was an education volunteer. <laughs> what this person said was that this person was an extremely good writer. Therefore, he was compelled to keep reading, but also that this person, you know, went through some had some angst. They were pretty tortured. And it was particularly with respect to his relationship with a certain woman that he was dating at the time. And that's the level of detail I have for you.
1: That is really good.
0: Be, be be warned. You might think you're exiting and leaving this experience, but others come after you and they may find your journal and read it.
1: Well, I have my journal, so it wasn't mine. We only had like 15 guys in our group and like, Three or four of them were gay, and you just said. So I mean, you pretty much nailed this down. There's only like, <laughs> there's only like two guys that this could be, and I'm not sure who they are yet. Yeah, I'll have to do the math later. This is a yeah, this you is a all
0: logic, can figure it out.
1: This is a logic game.
0: <laughs> I said, did you know this? Per- like, did you actually at some point talk to them and say, "Hey, I'm your replacement volunteer"? Because this was many, you know, a couple of groups after us. It wasn't the oh, most immediate interesting. I'm not really sure. I don't know what group he was in.
1: So they, so they've been reading that journal for for multiple groups.
0: Well, I don't know, and maybe it was only two. I don't know the timeline actually of when they served compared to when we served.
1: It could even be a fake journal. A Mo seventeener wrote a fake journal. Planted it. Yes, planted it. This is good. This is now. Now we have a conspiracy theory.
0: Perhaps. But in any case I asked him, I said, Did you tell him, since you know you know him, you've had conversations, you've at least introduced yourself and talked about projects or what have you And in, insight. Did you tell him that you A found his journal? And if so, be that you read it. And he said, No, neither of those things.
1: We we need to find the journal.
0: Oh, that would be great. Uh yeah, I, I don't believe he disposed of it and I don't believe he, he did not take it with him. So it might still be in that house. It might be a relative.
1: Next time you go to Mozambique, Haley, I know you're probably going to go next year. You need to go get the journal Okay. this is a a very important historical document now. (laughs) Yes. Well, I just hope whoever it is isn't really upset right now. Or at least if they are, they've already done their interview, so I can still interview them, you know, without any hard feelings. And if you
0: haven't done your interview and you're brave, you can tell us if it was you.
1: Yes, that would be nice, too.
0: Nothing incriminating, nothing embarrassing. Again, very interesting.
1: <laughs> very good writer. Okay.
0: Very good writer. You're a very good writer, they said.
1: Haley, do you have anything else to share?
0: Is there anything else you wanted me to talk about that?
1: We've had a great conversation, Haley. I appreciate it. It was great to, to get it, get back in touch and hear all about your continued work.
0: Yeah, I I know I talked a lot more about my work than I probably thought I would, but. um, Well, maybe the only thing is that we need to have a physical reunion where we can all come together somewhere uh, and hang out. And I don't know where that would be, but it would be really nice to connect. I I will say there are two, there are two Moes 15ers in DC that I know of whom I see on occasion. Uh, but the rest of y'all it'd be nice to
1: there's more um, including Baltimore and and um. I, there's probably there's at least a handful
0: so maybe the maybe this area of the country is actually not a bad idea James are you Jim or James I don't even know what to call you
1: I guess James yeah I guess I guess Jimbo I was James. Your, I... Is your thing oh my the... yeah my name says Jimbo on there yep
2: Jim Jimbo works Friends of Mozambique, which is a 501c3 nonprofit founded by Mo's RPCDs, is a way of continuing to make a positive impact in Mozambique post-Peace Corps service. The most important thing that we do is fund small grants to community groups in Mozambique. Projects have range from everything from teaching girls to code to youth empowerment through soccer. As a small organization, we are very intentional about choosing small, always less than $1,500, but impactful projects to get the most bang for our donor's buck. The best thing about Friends of Moe's is that 100% of donations go directly to projects in Mozambique. We have essentially zero overhead and have a great board, including former country director Carl Swartz, Peace Corps to Apple Failure Shuva, and uh, several RPCVs who you may know. If you want to learn more about Friends of Moe's, go to friendsofmozambique.com. You can learn more about our projects and make a donation if you are able. Um, thanks everyone. Samus. Friends of Mozambique, which is a 501 C3 nonprofit founded by MOS RPCDs, is a way of continuing to make a positive impact in Mozambique post-Peace Corps service. The most important thing that we do is fund small grants to community groups in Mozambique. Projects have ranged from everything from teaching girls to code to youth empowerment through soccer. As a small organization, we are very intentional about choosing small always less than $1,500, but impactful projects to get the most bang for our donor's buck. The best thing about Friends of Mo's is that 100% of donations go directly to projects in Mozambique. We have essentially zero overhead and have a great board, including former country director Carl Swartz, Peace Corps to Apple Failure Suva, and uh, several RPCVs who you may know. If you want to learn more about Friends of Mo's, go to friendsofmozambique.com, you can learn more about our projects and make a donation if you are able. Um, thanks everyone,